We're studying the Bible. If you'll turn to Genesis chapter 15, we're going to look now in our, in our, our pilgrimage pilgrimage of the story that's told there, Genesis chapter 15, what we're going to see is a radical, dramatic change in the storyline. There is literally a change in direction as this story is being told. And in this chapter, chapter 15 is one of the more important chapters in the Bible. And within that, there's going to be a sentence found that is the most important sentence in the Bible. It is the most often quoted uh, sentence in the New Testament that will be quoted in the New Testament because this sentence, it defines the doctrine of salvation. It will define in a single sentence the biblical doctrine of salvation. It defines faith. We're going to introduce uh, ourselves this week to a gentleman named Abraham. He'll be called Abram because when he has a radical change in his life, he'll get a radical name change. So he'll, he'll, he is known as the father of faith. Abraham is the father of faith. And he is the father of faith because he teaches us. We'll see this. He teaches us how to, what faith means. And faith means living as though the promises of God are true. Living as though the promises of God are true. And that's what we're going to see in this man. And we're going to learn how we should live accordingly. Now, before we get to him, let's review very quickly. The story begins in Genesis 1 and 2 in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve are designed to rule and live in harmony. They doubt and reject God's love and sin. And in their sin, as the first family, all men are sinful because of that. We inherit the original sin. Original sin now becomes attached to the double helix of human experience. After that, we see that they are cast out east of Eden. And with each generation, each story that's being told, you'll see the movement continues east, further and further away from home. And in that despair, chapters 11 through, or chapters 4 through 11, rather, I'm sorry, is trying to convince us of the absolute thoroughness and the depth of human sin. It is, uh, when I was reading it, even listening to it this week, I, I, I hearkened back to an old folk song by David Wilcox. He says, look, if, if someone wrote a play just, just to glorify what's stronger than hate, wouldn't that person arrange the stage to it look like the hero came too late? Look like evil has absolutely won. He's almost in defeat. And then what happens is that on the edge of every seat, Everyone, from the moment the whole thing begins. That's this story. It is this digression and moving east. It gets us to the point where we're wondering if evil has a, a foe that can, can, that can defeat it. Chapter 11, as it ends, we cry out, God, dear God, dear God, help us. And that's where things change. Chapter 12, we turn the page, and it's a new chapter, but it's a new direction. Because in the cold darkness, we hear this sentence in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Here's what happened. It says, Yahweh says to Abram, leave. Leave. Leave everything. Leave your family. Leave your native country. Leave all your, your father's relatives and, and go Go, come where I'm telling you to go, a land of promise. And what happens, there's this movement going east, 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 away from Eden. This is the first person that moves west, the patriarchs, going back 
to where we were designed to live in harmony with each other and with God. And here's what he says to Abram. He says, I will bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who treat you with contempt and all of the families on earth will be blessed through you. You will have a descendant which will fix this. This thing that we broke that we can't fix. And and, uh, Abram heard that and he did as he was instructed. So he went up and over and headed west to the promised land. He's heading west, finally. Only God can fix this because he is, listen, sovereign. Because God is sovereign, he will make this work. In Genesis chapter 12, Abram is 75 years old. He has no children. His wife is just under that age, and she was barren when she was in, in the uh, birth-giving years. And now she is way past that. When we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 15, this story we're going to study today, he's 85 years old. It's 10 years later. And at this point, uh, he's done, left everything. He's moved on. The promise of God giving him an heir so that he would form a nation and then someone would be blessed through that heritage, he's starting to doubt that. And so 10 years after the original promise, chapter 15, verse 1, God speaks to Abram again. Now, here's the key to understanding today's lesson, and it's kind of the word of the chapter. It's maybe the word of salvation. The word is, so- is, is sovereign. So that you understand this, because sovereign is both a title and a character traits or attributes, because a sovereign is a king, but a, a sovereign is supposed to have the ability to be sovereign, and sovereign means this. It means that person has power and a plan. You can have a plan, but not have the power to do it. That's most of us, right? And then you can have power, but not have a plan. God is sovereign. He has power and he has a plan. He has told a bit of that plan to Abram, and Abram's starting to doubt that. And so he's having this conversation again. Remember the word sovereign, because this is the first time Abram will talk to God. God has talked to Abraham or Abram, but now God, he's going to respond. Chapter 15, verse 1, the Lord says to Abram, he goes, do not be afraid, Abram. He's having a vision. He says, I am your shield and I'm your very great reward. First words from Abram towards God. He says, oh, sovereign Yahweh. He's appealing to that. What can you give me since I don't have an heir? I have a lot of stuff, but there's no one in my family to inherit it. I'm going to have to give this to one of my hired help. See, so what the, the problem is, he, the, the issue of sovereignty, sure, and particularly on the issue of power. Do you have the power to fulfill the promise that you made to me in Genesis chapter 12, that I would have many heirs? And so this is what God does. He takes him outside. The solution is, let's go outside. I love that phrase because it's as though the Lord is in this tent with him. And he says, let's go outside. And he says, look, look at this. He has him stare into the night sky. Abram, count the stars if you can. You'll have 
more descendants than there are stars in the night sky. You think Abram must have thought, does he have the power to cause birth in this family? And then stares at this. The one who speaks this into existence, it won't be a problem. And so he says, so shall your offspring be. And now, here it is. Here's the sentence. Here's the one that defines salvation. And it says in verse 6, and Abram believed in the Lord, Yahweh, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That is one powerful sentence. And Abram believed. That means he trusted Yahweh, that name, that formal name. He trusted Yahweh. That's what Abram did. But what does God do because of that belief? It says it is credited to him as righteousness. This is the sentence that comes up in the New Testament when it's defining what salvation faith means. It was credited to him as righteousness. Other translations will say it was reckoned to him. It's an accounting term. So it will say imputed to him. Imputed. Imputation means all at once. Lump sum, it's in his. his God, the righteousness of God is given to him all at once. It's done. It's complete. It's a task that's already finished. That's what it means. He believed in him and he believed in Yahweh. And God says, yeah, yeah. You're righteous. Now, so what's going to happen in in our drama now, in our storyline, is God's going to, Abram needs to know this has happened to him. That is the credit to him was righteous. He needs to be able to to remember this. Remember what he believes. And so as this progresses out, what's happening is Abram, in his continued conversation with the sovereign Lord, he says, okay, I've seen the stars. I get it. You have the power, but do you have the plan? I don't, I'm not sure about the plan. I have doubts about this. And God says to him, and so he says to him, I am Yahweh who brought you out of the, out of the area of the, Ur of the Chaldeans, and I'm going to give you all of this land so that you might possess it. But it says, but Abram said, oh, sovereign Yahweh, how can I know that I can gain possession of it? See, that's the issue is certainty. He needs confidence. He has doubts. And so I just, I want to, I want to just pause for a second on this, in the, in the subject matter of doubt. Doubting is not the antithesis of faith. No, 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 no. As a matter of fact, the Christian faith, right? Real faith is actually a plant that grows out of the soil of doubt. Hold on to some attribute of God that you question, you doubt, you're not certain of. Cling to it. Don't let it go. Argue with God. Let's see what happens. Sometimes, most times, Great faith in one of these attributes of God comes from it preceded by months and sometimes years of doubt about it. But we stay with the conversation. We stay with the subject matter. God says, come on, let's go. Test me and see. I want to talk about this doubt of yours. So this is, this is the father of faith and the father of faith has doubts. And, he, and God says, yes, let's do that. So the problem in this context is not the power, it's the plan. And the solution is for God to cut a covenant with Abram, cut a covenant. And so when we look at this cutting a covenant, I want you to see a couple things. Uh, First of all, is the motive of God. Why is God doing this? God is doing this because God is answering Abram's doubts. And so in his kindness, God is going to stoop down 
and communicate with Abram in a language using cultural customs that Abram already knows. And those cultural customs are literally used to, 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 to solidify certainty. And so I think I just, this is such a joyful thing to see because God is coming down and saying, oh, what do you know? How do you keep score? How do you know things are certain in your world using your language? And he goes, covenant. It's like, okay, then let's make a covenant together. Let's make a covenant together. And so in the ancient Near East, they had different types of covenants, covenants kind of like contracts, but higher with more, with more metal to them. In the highest ranking is a blood covenant, which is life and death. And in a blood covenant, what would happen is two men, generally speaking, it were, they were almost entirely men making these uh, covenants, and they would get an animal, they'd get a mammal, and they would cut that mammal in half, put the two sides on each side, and the middle would be this pooling blood. And then whatever the contract was, we would hold hands together or lock arms together, and we would walk through that puddle of blood, and we would chant, happened to this animal might happen to me. May it happen to me if I don't fulfill the promises that I'm making in this contract. What happened to this animal, may it happen to me if I don't fulfill the promises that I'm making in this contract. And then quite often they would exchange bloody sandals so that if there was ever a contention made about that contract, someone would say, well, you know, I never made that contract. Is it really? Then how come Biff has your bloody sandals? That was like the paperwork being done there. That's the covenant that was cultural, that was regularly expressed in this time period, Caesarean vassal treaty kind of covenant. God says, yes, okay, so I'm going to speak to you in your language and your terms, but God, Yahweh, always extravagant. He tells Abram, get some mammals, not one. He says, we're going to need five animals, a heifer, a goat, a lamb. We'll need a dove and a pigeon. Cut them, cut them up. It's going to be a lot of blood. And so he takes these animals in the prime of their life, three years old for the mammals, the heifer, the goat, and the lamb. He cuts those in half and puts them. And then the, the dove and, and the pigeon, they're just two years old, prime of their life, and kills them. That puddles. And then it says in the Bible that birds of prey suddenly come screeching down to assault the carcasses. Now, that's a strange sentence in the midst of this story, especially in light of God being sovereign, you couldn't keep the birds away? No, the birds are allowed to be there by God so that in this most spiritual demonstration of God's love covenant of salvation, he wants us to know, he wants you and I to know this, that we're in a spiritual war for our souls. We live in two realms, my friend. And in that other realm, that spiritual realm, Demons and angels, when we have spiritual conversations of consequence, they try to invade those. In the original covenant ritual, this is expressed by the birds of prey. Abram chases those away, and then it's, it's time to sign. Let's go. Let's do this. Let's lock arms. Let's walk through. And here's what happens. And when the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then Yahweh said to him, know for certain that your descendants, look what it says, know for certain, just to be clear, all of this is to make certain that the faith in Abraham brought him righteousness as a gift. So he goes on, he goes, remember the question was a plan, 
know for certain this, that your descendants will be strangers in a country that's not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves, and afterwards you will come out of that with great possessions. You, however, will go to your, father, to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. And in the fourth generation, your descendants will come, out, will come back here because the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. I have power. I have a plan. You want to, is this an awesome plan? He says, Abram, look, I, I'll tell you what's going to happen for the next 500 years. Here's what's going to happen. Your, your heirs, they're not ready yet. They're not big enough. And so they're going to go to Egypt so they, they can form a nation. But you know what? Egypt's not quite ripe for its lesson to be learned, so we have to wait for them to get ready. And then meanwhile, by the way, the people that are living in the promised land... I'm going to give them four, 500 years to repent because if not, they'll be held responsible for that. How's that for a plan? Details good enough? Here's why I want you to know that, because there will be times. In those 400, 500 years, you're going to be thinking that the evil side has won. The hero has come too late. I want you to know now before it happens that it's all part of this plan. I am Yahweh, and I am sovereign. That's my powerful plan. Listen, here's what happens next. And when the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with blazing torch, that's Yahweh, right, appeared and passed between the two pieces. And on that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land from the river Egypt to the great river Euphrates. Did you see what happened? A covenant was being cut and it was time for them to walk through together. And it says very specifically that Abram goes into a deep, dark sleep and only Yahweh walks through and makes the promises. There are three very important words to describe biblical salvation. Each of these are life-altering. This is what happened. This is the salvation covenant. One, it is unilateral. That means it's one way. Only one person signed the contract. Can you imagine if a unilateral covenant was involved in your mortgage? This is what, this is what a mortgage covenant contract looks like. I go there and, I, and, I, and my bank says, I'm going to pay the previous owner, and I swear I'm going to pay the bank. Then it's time, all the papers show up, right? Everybody gets new pens because it'll be a while, and stacks of paper and ready, sign, and I go to sleep, right? You fall asleep during your own closing, you wake up and you go, what happened? And, and right, the attorney say, well, so the bank signed all their paperwork, so they're going to pay the previous owner, but ha, you don't have to pay anything. House is free. That's what unilateral looks like. That's this covenant. Only one person signed it, only Yahweh. Second, it's unconditional. It's an unconditional covenant. What did Abram do? Fell asleep. Salvation covenant is not doing something, it's receiving something. And finally, salvation covenant is, it's immutable. It can't be changed. And the reason I say this is because it's important, Old Testament and new. Because when you sign a contract, this contract, you sign on the bottom line. Why do you sign on the bottom line? So no one can add anything below it. You can't add to this contract, this covenant. And, and so this covenant is signed by God in blood at the bottom. 
so that later, 430 years later, when God makes a covenant to Moses, you don't get to staple that to the bottom of this. That's a different kind of covenant for a different purpose. You don't get salvation and then earn it with the Ten Commandments, that covenant. Just like in the New Testament, people say, I'm going to receive salvation by grace, and then I'm going to earn it through works. It's immutable. You can't change it. It is. This is the covenant. It is, like it says right here, it is unilateral, unconditional, and immutable. That's the salvation covenant. So I want to bring all of this to some, a couple of conclusions. Here's the first conclusion, okay? It's, this is the logic of it. So if God paid everything on our soul's behalf, and if we believe that to be true, and we're paid in full, then why not continue to sin? Why not actually increase sinning, right? I mean, like if I had a trip somewhere or a vacation where it was all expenses paid, could, are you with me? But the expenses are going to go up, up, up. All expenses, then I'm going to make sure I get all the expenses. That makes sense because that's, that's logical. That's right. If you think that's what this kind of salvation covenant is suggesting, then, well, you're right. You're right. That's the point. It does make sense. Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous British pastor and Bible scholar, said this, a very good test of gospel preaching that leads to people being accused of promoting irresponsible living, that's the test. That's a good test. If my preaching presentation of the gospel of salvation does not expose this, then it's not the gospel. In other words, that makes perfect sense. You're right. And here's how you can know this to be true. Okay, some of you are annoyed with this, but yeah, if you're preaching the gospel, it leads people to believe logically, then I can do whatever I want. That's what happened in the New Testament. So Paul writes the Romans and he says, look, if, if, if everything's free and salvation is it's a free gift, then shouldn't I, should sin not increase? See how he makes that logical step? He says it in Galatians. He says, do not let your freedom be a license to continue to sin more. In, in Jude, it says, do not turn God's grace into lewdness. The reason that he says that each time is because people are doing the math. If, if the if grace does not have the potential to be taken advantage of, it doesn't have the power to transform. So, that's, that's the logic of the gospel. But the meaning of the gospel is this, because each time that accusation is brought up, the answer is always the same. For the Holy Father so loved the world, loved you, that he gave his only son. What? You want to take advantage of, for God so loved, loved you that he gave his only son to be killed on your behalf? You want to take advantage of that? See, the, the writers of the Gospels in the, in, in the New Testament, they say this, let's go outside. Let's look. Who, who are you talking about? Who are you talking to? Faith alone saves, but a saving faith is never alone. Uh, Dwight Edwards uh, says this, if grace makes sense to you, then I doubt you're close enough to really understand grace. The real thing de- defies comprehension, it, it, but not in our experience. Grace is God's irrational, unimaginable, Kindness. 
That's what grace is. You can look at it logically and say, I can run up the score, but you can look at it, the meaning of it, and say, how can I get closer to holiness? Not how can I get closer to sin. That kind of saving faith says, how can I get closer to the Lord? This is an entirely different kind of religion. That's why some people say Christianity isn't a religion. Every religion says, look, uh, justice is the primary, some expression of justice, and people get what they deserve. And then those religions will add mercy, because mercy is withholding one of these things that you deserve, you know, or just judgment. Christianity says, no, 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 we're going to add. Your, Christianity adds grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve, righteousness. Why is this method of salvation in the Bible? Why does God choose this way, right, strategically, logically? The first reason is the nature of man. We can't do this. We, we like, forget us and we, you. Do you want to be on that contract? Do you want to sign that? Do you want to be responsible to God to, like, do your part? Wow. The second thing about the nature of man that keeps us from being part of this type of salvation is that God in his values is in his soul, in his heart, he realizes that our souls are too precious to delegate something this important to us. In other words, he knows we can't be trusted with something this precious and says, I'll get this, I'll take all of this. Now, that's kind of one way of looking at this method of salvation and why, but here's, the, here's another reason and the primary reason that's much deeper. This method of salvation, all the glory goes to God. All of it. That's all we can talk about. We bring nothing to this but sin. And so when we tell our friends and our families and demons and angels are overhearing our conversation, all we go on and on and on about is the love and the glory of a sovereign and just holy God. That's why. What do we do? We sleep through it. That's what we do. In the context of applying this, there's a, there's, I was thinking this week, I thought there's two absolutely easy ways to apply this or easy ways maybe to understand it. One is just in the doctrine of salvation itself as it applies to you. Maybe in your life you've been attending church or you've been keeping score in the way that the kind of the religious way is and thinking your name is on the contract. I'd ask you to, today, this morning, to choose what the Bible says is the doctrine of salvation. And that is, it's a unilateral, unconditional, immutable contract that only God signs. And maybe today you could say, okay, I get it. I trust in that Yahweh. And with that... It is credit to you as his righteousness. Another way to apply this section of Scripture is what, how it was applied to Abram's life. How can I be sure? How can I be certain? And so God, in his love, he, in his mercy, he comes down and says, look, I'm going to show you in a way that you understand what unconditional, unilateral, immutable looks like. And so this is to help us understand that we can have certainty about our eternal destiny and our standing before God right now. Could I interrupt this for just a second and say, what kind of God would allow you to be uncertain about eternity? Think about that. Not knowing. Are you going to go to heaven? I don't know. 
I'll ask God. And he says, we'll see. You'll know when you get here. We'll have that talk. Hope you make it. That's not a loving God. And so God says, I want you to know. I want you to be sure. And I want you to understand where it's from. It's all from me. So maybe today you, you drive a stake in the ground in the journey of your soul and you say, I'm not going to negotiate this anymore. I'm going to be, I'm going to say, from, there's no way I can go to hell. There's no way I can't get to heaven. I'm going to, you know, he promised, I believed it, we're done. That'd be a great way to live forward. You could live courageously. He holds your hand. You're not holding his and he's not going to let go of you. That's what this passage says. Another way to apply this is kind of, well, in the context of what we talk about here, uh, become like Christ in all of life. How do you apply this doctrine of salvation that's true to your identity? How does it show up in your identity? Because if this were, if, if, if faith is living as though the promises of God are true and this is true, then, then where is there a place for, or for threat to, towards your ego? or your reputation. What do you care about your reputation? And why is your ego threatened? It can't experience shame, not if this is true, and you're living as though it's true. Your identity is defined by this kind of contract, this type of salvation. Let me, let me give you, this is, this is very helpful, I think, it, uh, to illustrate because it's, it's, a, it's a physical illustration of what's happening inside a person's soul. It would be a, called the contrast of confessions, okay? People applying or not applying this to their identity, this doctrine. So well, maybe a couple of years ago, we had to confront a, a man that, that was a big man. He was a big man over six feet tall, and he uh, memorized a lot of, uh, and actually memorized and taught a lot of Bible facts I'm not sure he knew what the meanings of those facts were, but he spent most of his adult life in Bible teaching churches and taught Bible facts as well. He was confronted with um, emotionally and verbally and biblically using the Bible as a club, abusing his wife. The evidence was irrefutable. And in that confrontation... He said, it's her fault. And he didn't even know by saying, it's her fault. He was quoting Adam, it's the woman you gave me. That's not a Bible verse you want to be quoting. And in, the, in all of that, we were all like, what, what happened? Why was he so threatened? Because he had a reputation, and it could be lost. It was all, what, what does he care about a reputation? His reputation is he's a child of the living God. But there was shame. There's no shame. There's no shame in being a child of God. Because all of your shame, it was strapped to the back of Jesus Christ when he was walking through Jerusalem naked, and people were mocking him. Shame is done. Now... If he believed in the promise of salvation, he would know he has inherited the honor of Jesus Christ. So you can't be shamed. So here's an example of someone that knows but doesn't understand. That's not living in faith. That's just knowing facts about it. Last week, I had a conversation with a young woman, small. When she would raise her voice, it would sound like a whisper. 
She doesn't know very much Bible. She's relatively new to the faith. And she was confronted with some things, and she said she took responsibility for that, and she says, I've learned to end with my apologies with this. Is there anything else? Is there any other way that I might have offended you that I might take responsibility? Because I have found that I am so self-centered that I can do damage all around me and not even know the injury I'm causing. So could you please tell me, is there anything else? Now, what is this 100-pound young lady thinking? She's thinking, I'm not threatened, and I have no shame. She is living as though the promises of God are true, and the promises said that who she is, who she belongs to, is a gift of God, only God. It is by faith It is by grace only. And so she stands solid and secure. She has become like Christ in her identity. And that's why she's the stronger of the two. That's what faith looks like as attached to identity. Here's what I have found. That you and me easily forget what God has done. We don't know the thoroughness of unconditional, unilateral, immutable grace does to us. And I, wouldn't it be great if God would stoop again and give us, I don't know, a covenant reminder? And so that's what the Lord's table is all about, my friends. That's what this is for. It's for the forgetful. If you're one of the ushers, if you'll go back in the back and and get the, the bread, start passing out as soon as you get it. And if you have come here, and maybe even today is the first day, if you have trusted, if you have trusted that the promise of God is true, that his son died for you so that you might be imputed with his righteousness. We'd love, to, we'd love for you to join us as a family. We'll, we'll take the bread together. But the reason there is the Lord's table is because of our forgetfulness. It is because we're weak. It is because we wonder. And we need someone, we need God to say, okay, let me try to communicate this in a way that you can understand, in language that you can understand. So he takes a covenant, the Passover covenant, one that takes place in the book of Exodus, and he says, I'm going to have you do this. And it's not Passover anymore. It's called the Lord's covenant or the Lord's table. And he does this. The night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he, and he, and he breaks it. Think about this. He breaks it and he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Two parts. Like he just cut a covenant. And we're to take this bread when we have doubts about the sovereign God and we wonder, does he have power? Can his power really change me? Because I have an addiction to sin that I can't overcome. And I wonder if he has power. And so he says, hey, let's go back to this table and remember about a covenant that was cut It was to remind you of my sovereign power. So would you think about that as we pass out this bread? We'll take the bread together and and be reminded of the power of God.
Let's take the bread together. That same night, um, you can pass out the, the drink. That same night, Jesus took the cup and he said, now we know what a covenant is. We say, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is my blood of the new covenant. Jesus is saying, I know you're going to have doubts about my sovereign power, but also about my plan. I have plans for you. I have plans for creation. There'll be a final day. I will return. I will return with a trumpet blows. You'll know. And I know you'll doubt that plan. But this blood, this is my blood. This is the blood between this broken mammal And don't get your feet in this. Let it cover your soul. So when the Father looks down on you and all you see is your sin and you can't overcome that, he looks down and sees the blood of his son and your imputed righteousness. Meditate on that, on the sovereign plan of God for your life. My brothers and sisters, let's take the cup together. Now, when Jesus finished, he said, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, do this in remembrance of me until I come in glory. Until I come in glory. Why would he say that? Because as time goes by, we grow weary in doing good. We grow weary in wondering if God is sovereign. Does he have power? Look at the world. Does he have a plan? Doesn't look like it. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Listen, no. Let's do this so that we remember of the sovereign holiness of the, of the justice of God that's coming. When Abraham died, when he was alive, he was promised his descendants would inherit everything from the river of, the Egypt, river of Egypt to the Euphrates River. When Abraham died, he owned a graveyard plot. All he owned was a tomb, first to bury his wife and then him. But he lived by faith that he'd own all that land someday. His descendants would. His grandson, Jacob, he and his family was 72. They ended up in Egypt. But when Jacob died, he says, bury me with Abraham. And they had quite a funeral procession to bring him back and bury him in that one place owned by the Jews, that graveyard, that tomb. And when Abram's great-grandson, Joseph, died, second in command in Egypt. And when royalty dies in Egypt, (laughs) they can do quite a tombstone. You might have seen them. Pyramids. And Joseph said, I'll have none of that. Save my bones. In 400 years that was promised to Abraham, in 400 years we'll be leaving. Take my bones. Bury me with my great-grandfather and my grandfather and my father. That's living by faith. It's already happened but not yet. It's already been declared that we're righteous. We just don't get to enjoy it right now. We get a taste of Eden. We're on our way back. We're headed west. Jesus said, whenever you practice this, do this in remembrance of me. I'm coming back. Justice. I'll make things right.